Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. We've been learning about many different conditions uh, which seem to have underlying causes such as inflammation, oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction, all contributing to put us on this pathway toward chronic diseases. So uh, we've looked at various therapies and things we can do to help some of these, and we're going to have some more discussions on such um, approaches today. We're going to be talking about light therapy, and I'm sure with our guests, we're going to get into some very interesting topics. So with me, I have Len Saputo, uh, MD. He is a board-certified internist with 50 years of clinical experience. He has pioneered the development of an integrative, holistic, person-centered, preventive health care, which is called health medicine. He's the founder of the Health Medicine Forum, a nonprofit educational foundation, and the Health Medicine Center in Walnut Creek, California. He's a practicing physician, a motivational speaker, and a television and radio personality. And, get this tennis players, he was formerly ranked number one in the world in men's singles tennis by the International Tennis Federation. He's the author of the Nautilus Gold Award-winning book, A Return to Healing, Radical Health, Care Reform, and the Future of Medicine, and the book Science, Spirituality, and Medicine. Now, for our listener, he has a free website at www.docetorsaputo.com. That's drsaputo.com. And he's got over 2,600 audio and video files that are organized to provide completely free integrative information on more than 30 common health conditions. This is indeed a resource. He is currently involved in NIH funded research at the University of California, San Francisco on the use of infrared therapy for pain management and to speed healing. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Susan. Pleasure to be on. Oh, as always, uh, good to talk to you. So, I mean, you've done a lot of work with integrative therapies and, you know, after you know, 50 years of trying to uh, help patients. So what are some of the therapies you found useful that um, people might not normally come across? Well, a lot of this came started in the early 90s. In fact, in 1994, I founded what's called the Health Medicine Forum, which is a nonprofit educational foundation. And the point of this was to try to find ways to work together. So we're looking at integrative strategies, holistic strategies that look at the whole person, preventive strategies. And, uh, and, and in that process, I've really learned about different kinds of uh, healthcare modalities. I've learned everything from hands-on stuff to uh, chiropractic, Ayurveda, and hundreds of other disciplines. And to my surprise at the time, what I discovered is that there are a lot of modalities out there that we don't know much about that people have been practicing for a long time. And some of them, like Ayurveda, are 5,000 years old, which says maybe there's something to it. But in my training, you know, as an internist, didn't get any of that. In fact, 
we had kind of an arrogant position that the only kind of medicine that was any good was stuff that we did uh, through uh, modern medicine today. Yes, and, I flunked Arrogance 101 the first time I had to take it, but I did pass it the second time. Yeah, well, you know, we all do. Uh, the training is really tough, and by the time I got out of my you know, medical school and, and internship and residency, I was just like all the rest of the doctors, like my professors wanted. And so I went ahead and uh, it took me about 20 years to figure out what you figured out as soon as you got out of medical school. <laughs> well, what have you figured out? Well, I think there are other ways to practice medicine. We need to be integrative, holistic, persons, holistic person-centered and preventive in our, in our approach. And we have to listen to what other people are talking about when it comes to ways of managing uh, thing, uh, people. Uh, in fact, one of the things that was really a big uh, eye-opener for me was the spiritual side. You know, we, I'd say most doctors have a religious or some kind of spiritual belief system. They may go to church on Sunday. They get to work on Monday. It's like it's all out the window. And we go right back to our, quote, science or nothing approach, which gets us right where we are today. And you know what that's like. Well, I've always had an issue because I've talked to several clinicians and tried to organize spiritually oriented groups for clinicians. And they, they dichotomize spirituality that they can't bring it into the hospital or the office is surprising. Because the true test to me of spirituality, as you live it in the mud, the everyday events, it's not something you do in the cloisters. It's something, the real test is being out in the battlefield, being it. Well, yeah, it's about being with people. It's not so much doing something to them. You know, Western medicine or modern medicine is do something. You know, it's a technology or a drug or some kind of other approach. It's changing uh, our metabolism or or what's happening in our body in some way and, and hopefully making our symptoms go away. But we almost never get to the underlying cause of what uh, of why we're sick or why we're dysfunctional. And it's, it, it's, it's shocking when you think that all these smart people that go to medical school uh, come out with the idea that it's science or nothing. And it's like, why would anybody do that? You know, I, I mean, you can think of some reasons if you're into conspiracy theories. But you, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, oh, no, it's right. Okay. A yeah. lot of that's, but a lot of it's really true. And big pharma controls a lot of what happens in, in medicine. I mean, it runs the medical centers. Without their money, medical centers couldn't function. And when you look at the amount of money that's spent in research, it's $92 billion a year, whereas NIH spends $32 billion a year. So you can imagine the death grip that pharma has on medical centers and what they teach. And so a lot of it is centered around that. So if you come out with a new technology, as we have with this light business that we're, we're going to talk about today, you've got almost no chance of getting that into the mainstream for a lot of reasons that we'll get into. I remember one of my attendings at Stanford, Dr. Spiegel, who will be on the show at a later date, would say, you know, something like, don't, don't just talk, don't just be there. You know, don't yeah, just right. stand there, be there. And that was rather interesting. Right, so, that's David Spiegel? Yeah. Yeah, he's a pretty famous guy. Uh, he's a very nice guy. Uh, he's wonderful. But anyway, let's talk about these alternative approaches. Okay. What, what what have you found, and how do we how do uh, our listeners find these approaches and get involved with them? Okay, I'll tell you how I got started first. You know, seventeen years ago, I was reading a throwaway journal. I call them that, and I noticed that there was a an ad for for light therapy. It was infrared light therapy. And it made all these claims that it could do cure everything, and I thought, yeah, here we go again. How much BS can I give you in one day? 
And that maybe that's why I, I looked at it as a throwaway magazine. And as I was about to throw it in the trash, I noticed that the fellow who was involved with uh, the ad was a guy and had developed all this technology, lived five minutes from my house. <laughs> so I decided it's a national journal. So I called him and I said, why do you print things like that? You know, if this is really so good, wouldn't everybody be doing it? And he just listened for a while and he finally said, you know, you're like everybody else. When something <laughs> new comes along, when something new comes along, you're not so open uh, to listening to it. He says, why don't you come over and bring a couple of patients? This is an electrical engineer. He's not a doctor. Okay. He worked okay. for NASA and he taught at UC, at UC Berkeley, uh, the, the students in, in uh, electrical engineering there. And uh, I brought two patients over that had a lot of pain. And I was shocked that in about 15 minutes, the man who had MS was now able to walk more upright. He had a smile on his face and he said, the pain is much less. Thank you. Thank you. And, and, and as it turned out, we saw him a few more times. And within about three weeks, this is a guy that was bedridden. Okay. And he struggled to come to the office that day. He was all hunched over and he's using his crutches and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, he, within about three weeks, went from being bedridden most of the time to having a full-time job. It was like, what? Amazing. Now, he, he since died from his MS because it didn't change the length of time he lived. I don't think it changed the disease itself, but it sure made his life more comfortable. He was delighted. So I decided. I, I do have a couple of people, at least three people that I know of that have cured their own MS, which is multiple sclerosis. And at a later date, we'll have them on the show to say what they did to you know, not only feel better, to prolong their lives and yeah. get rid of the MS. Yeah, well, that's good. I think there are new technologies that we can, we can talk about that you're probably into uh, that can cure just about anything when you're looking at electronics and the biophysics of how the body works. But anyway, back to the story. I went ahead and, and worked with this man, Maurice Bales. He said, do you want to do more training? I said, sure. So because of my interest in what I saw happen, I said, why don't we bring two or three patients after work on Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays and treat them and let's do it for three months. And he said, fine. And we did that. And I was watching all these people get better from almost everything. And he turned to me and he said, what do you think now, Mr. Smart Guy? I said, I think we better get started on teaching me how to do it. And we worked together now 17 years, and we've seen thousands and thousands of patients that has made dramatic changes in their life. Well, this is also making the mainstream journals right now. So this yep. is progressing. In front of me, I've got Frontiers in Neuroscience about yep. using light to stop neurodegeneration in Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. So it is... Uh, you know, become um, hopefully the main medical practitioners will become more aware of this, or at least you know, open to having other people do it. Yeah, well, some of that research is actually very early research, but it's stunning because you could there are case reports, okay, of people with Alzheimer's disease where they're in hospitals, they're having trouble remembering the names of family members. And uh, after three or four months of wearing this little device on their head for 20 minutes a day, they're driving a car. I mean, it's like, we don't, we've never seen anything like that in medicine. Wow. I don't care how you go about it when it comes to Alzheimer's. Wow. And, that, and now we're talking about things like uh, other diseases that are like traumatic brain injuries uh, that we can use it for. Uh, so it's, it's like, this is a whole new field that we're waking up to that has, I think, incredible potential for yeah, stroke, 
And for the listener, I'd like to point out that when you've got a traumatic brain injury or, you know, or open blood brain barrier, which happens so easily, I mean, you know, electromagnetic fields, there's many things that will open the blood brain barrier. And that starts our microglial cells going. And once they start going in this chain of inflammation and oxidative stress, it's extremely hard to stop. So if we've got any way to at least quell that, that's a pretty big contribution. It really is. And then you look at ways of shining the light, okay, on the brain. And fortunately, the light go- has little channels in the skull where it accepts the light and it goes in just as well as if you shine it directly on the brain. Wow. So you can get the light there. And then when the light's in there, it gets rid of these beta amyloid plaques and the, and the wow. toxins. It eats them up and it starts doing it immediately. So if you do that for a few days, you've got these things cleared out and you're increasing the ability of the body to make energy. So the mitochondria, which are the little energy packets in the cell, are stimulating the production of something called ATP, which is a major energy of the body. And it upregulates how the body can heal itself because of that. It's, it's just, it's amazing. Amazing. So what is this light therapy? What does it do? Why does it work? Okay. There are a whole lot of... Uh, reasons why that's true. I think that the, what most people think is that it increases circulation, and we know that it does. There are thousands of studies on this. So when the light hits a blood vessel that's constricted, what it does is it instantly releases a chemical called nitric oxide, which is the same thing that nitroglycerin does to the body when you have angina, and it increases circulation right now. So if you had angina, and I've had people come to my office with angina, and you shine that over their left chest, within 30 seconds, that pain is gone. So it increases circulation. But also, it it attracts activated stem cells. Stem cells are what repair tissue. That's what what you have to have for almost any injury. So you activate them, and it begins to do that. It increases healing by about 40%, according to the NASA studies. As I said, it increases ATP, it reduces inflammation, uh, it increases lymphatic drainage. Uh, We're using it for cancer now in photodynamic therapy. It modulates the immune response and it relieves pain. So that's how it works. So it's really something that is very powerful in a a wide range of, of mechanisms. And that's why we're seeing some of the things that we're seeing as we apply it to a wide range of conditions. Wow. Is there anything it can't do? I don't know. I'm still learning. I mean, I didn't tell you about a couple of things. I mean, the blue light actually that we use actually kills microbes. So if you've got uh, a methicillin-resistant staph, you've got a good chance of doing something uh, by shining that blue light over the, over the area where the infection is. And there are people in Germany that are doing some interesting stuff. They're using light intravenously. So there's a guy named. How do you do intravenous light? That means put it in a vein and shove it in. How do you do that? All right. So you put a catheter in a vein and you get these little tiny uh, microfilaments, okay, that you you put in through that uh, little needle and you can shine any kind of light you want there and it gets, it goes all over the body. But I don't think you really need to do that because this light, the infrared goes in up to 10 inches. So you're getting great penetration just by doing it through the skin. Uh, and, uh, so it's, it's like, we've got a lot of different ways of doing things and we're learning a lot about it. People are doing it with a lot of different approaches and, uh, that's just another way to do it. That's pretty exciting. 
I'll say. I mean, it, it blew my mind when I started learning these things. At the beginning, before we knew that it, it would activate stem cells, I knew it. In fact, I tried to get people to try and do a study on it that would show that that's what happened because the healing pattern of this thing is there's an acute change that happens right now where you're reducing inflammation and you're uh, uh, increasing circulation and doing all the other things I said. Uh, but there's another change that occurs over a period of about a week where you see this speeded up healing because of the stem cells. And it turns out that's exactly right. Uh, does it matter what color light you use? I'm not sure. I think the biggest thing with that is the depth of light. The longer wavelengths uh, are penetrating more. So you're looking at something like infrared, uh, and it goes in up to, I, I guess, up to 10 inches. And you look at blue light, and it maybe goes in a couple of millimeters. Uh, and then the visible light, like red and other colors, uh, goes somewhere in between those two. So it's uh, that's the main thing. But the interesting thing about blue light is that even if it goes just to the surface of the skin, you're getting an effect all over the body because what about those nerves? And this primarily is a, is a is a, a technology that affects nerves. Yeah, nerves all over the surface of the skin, right? And yeah. that goes right down to the to the body of the nerve, which may be way deeper. It may even be in the spinal cord or in the brain. And you can affect the whole body with blue light. And what we found actually is that is the most powerful light in our clinical experience, even though when I talk to the Harvard guys about what they're doing, they say, oh no, that light doesn't penetrate. It's like, well, guys, you know, you're the researchers. I'm telling you it works. Do the research. <laughs> Does it matter what source the light is from, or do you need a special light bulb or a special gadget? Yeah, well, the devices that I use are about $7,000 a light. So they're very complex, and I don't understand the electronics of it. I haven't even tried. I got my hands full just trying to do the clinical applications. So my partner, Maurice Bales, has been doing uh, that side of it. And he's always coming up with a new light. About every month he comes out and here, says, try this one. I've got a whole box full of lights that I've been using over the last 17 years, years to do some amazing things. Is there some cheaper version that our audience can go out and buy so they can start playing around with light? Or yeah, are there any harmful effects if they shine the wrong light the wrong place? Well, if the light's too powerful and you put it in your eye, that's probably not a good idea. But if you have a, a light that's, say, got 250 or 500 milliwatts, which isn't a whole lot of energy, uh, as opposed to the 10 or 12 watts that we're using, that I'm using these days, uh, you can get some pretty effective changes in the, in the eye. In fact, I've had four or five patients who've had their vision come back, and I put it in their eye by, by, on purpose. And uh, it's, it's a pretty exciting thing when you shine that in for 20 or 30 seconds, and then they open their eye. And they go, oh, I can see. And it's like, wow, you're kidding me. It's, uh, it's, it's shocking. Well, what's a cheaper version that the audience can go out and buy so they can just start well, they, letting the they, light shine? Well, you can do that like anything else. You can do it yourself. And, and the problem with the technology is that if you don't have, do that in real time with an infrared scanner, so your body's always emitting light. It's always emitting this infrared light. And so if you get an infrared camera and you can take uh, pictures in real time uh, over and over. So every second you get a new image, you can see what you're doing. You can see the heat patterns on the surface of the skin. And that'll tell you a lot about uh, what you're doing. So if you can see that happening, 
you know that you've done something that really makes a difference in uh, the biochemistry and physics uh, of, of the body. So we, we do it that way. Now, if you just go out and buy a $50 or $100 or $200 machine, you're going to get some light from that that's going to do some good things. And it'll work reasonably well, you know, for some of the aches and pains that you have, maybe from a, a sports injury. The best way to do it and the way we do it is with infrared scanning. So we do it in real time that way, and I can see what I'm doing as I treat, and that's where you get your best effects. Yeah, but those of us that just want, you know, so if we do hit and miss and maybe we get 20% of the effect you do, that could be better than nothing. Sure. So you could go to a company like Thor, T-H-O-R. So you go to ThorLaser.com, and they'll make a device for you that's inexpensive. So how does this compare with laser light? Well, this is really a confusing issue because what we're talking about that we're using are LEDs, light-emitting diodes. And a laser is coherent light. It has a more narrow frequency so that you're only using a few wavelengths, maybe uh, four or five wavelengths as opposed to 15 or 20, which you do with LEDs. And then they give it a whole bunch of different names. So the LEDs that we use are called cold lasers. Uh, It's called photobiomodulation photonic stimulation. There are uh, lots of different names for it, but basically it's we're just using LED lights. Lasers, I don't think, work as well. And the consensus now is not to do that because it can be dangerous because if you're using a lot of power in a small area, you're going to burn the tissue. Uh, the way we do it, uh, you really can't unless you're a bonehead. I mean, you got to be pretty straightforward. So wow. uh, that's what we do. Okay, so maybe we just go out and buy LED lights and and start playing. <laughs> well, if you, if you knew which wavelengths you had and and other ways to deliver the light, you'd do pretty well. If you want to get the best uh, lights, you, you should get them through um, the, my friend, and he he sells a few, he doesn't sell much of them. He doesn't make much money doing that, but a lot of healthcare practitioners prefer to use the best lights there are. So uh, that would be Maurice Bales. And that's at balesphotonics.com if anybody's interested. Okay, balesphotonics.com. Okay, you talk about infrared. So how does that connect with infrared that you'd find in a sauna? Well, that's far infrared in a sauna. And what we're using is near infrared. And I'm sure you can get a lot of the effects of the light uh, from far infrared, too. But we've, we've done a lot of research on which frequencies and which wavelengths to use. And that's why we are using the ones that we do. And I think the consensus is, is that infrared is probably the one that is the most commonly used because we know it goes so deep. And then we use red, uh, which treats the blood pretty well. Uh, and then the blue light, which most of the time people think it should be done just for superficial, but we're, we're changing that paradigm. And an interesting thing we notice is if you put blue light on the skin and it's in a dark room, what you'll see uh, in the body fluorescing is red. So what's happening is the body is absorbing blue light, but it's emitting red, probably of a frequency that's important to the body. So we have a lot to learn here that hasn't been uh, really studied that well, but, uh, but we're making progress. This is amazing. So when you shine light on something, it'll give a temporary fix. And then I assume the body will kind of creep back toward its chronic state. So you need to do repeated therapies. Sometimes you can take a diabetic with painful neuropathy. And if it's mild to moderate, I'd say if you treat that person three times, 
in three successive days, the pain will be gone, the numbness will be improved, the balance will be improved, and that'll stay anywhere from a few days to a few months to a few years. Wow. I would say most people need probably six or eight treatments. And by the way, they're about $60 a treatment because we make it affordable for people. And that's Great. That's a long story. Because it's not reimbursable by insurance. So if we charge $300 a treatment, which is what it would be probably worth, people couldn't afford it. So we do what we can to provide the services that people need when it comes to this or anything else so that they can, they can get it. Now, we've interviewed Robert Rowan on this program where mm-hmm. Ozone does a lot of amazing similar things. So um, how does it compare to what Ozone does? Well, it's just a different mechanism, uh, and they do pretty much the, uh, they have the same effects on people. Uh, I haven't used ozone myself, but I've watched I've watched Robert Rowan's uh, films on uh, uh, online, and they're fantastic. And of course, I know Robert uh, Robert pretty well. We were we've been friends for about twenty years, and uh, I think it's great. But you have to inject it. This you just shine on the body, and. Uh, I can't tell you which one is better. I don't know that anybody's done that study. We don't get much money, you know, to do the studies that we do because the studies we've done, for the most part, we've paid for. The original study we did with diabetic neuropathy patients at the VA in Martinez on 120 of them, we paid $100,000 of our own money to do the study. Wow. And then it came out beautifully and the FDA wasn't interested in looking at our data because of the conflicts of interest it has with the FDA, I mean, with uh, Big Pharma. How does this compare to pulse electromagnetic frequencies, which is abbreviated PEMF? Yeah, I use that in my practice too, and I find them complementary. A lot of the time they do the same things. It certainly increases circulation with PEMF too. But sometimes you just, you know, it works in what, it, it, it has a different mechanism, but I'm not sure that I know what it is. And so from a clinical point of view, if I don't have good results from light, I'll very, I'll very often add the PEMF to it particularly if somebody comes in with back pain and with sciatica, it makes a, I mean, they do a fantastic uh, job of working together to relieve it. Often in 15 or, or 30 minutes, they walk in with sciatica and walk out without pain. That sounds like an incredible clinic you have over there. Well, it is. It is. I'm, I'm so happy to be able to do what I do to help people. I mean, that's what medicine is supposed to be about. Absolutely. Just like, just like your practice, Susan. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Um, well, we're coming to a break now. We've got uh, so we're coming up to a break, and we'll be back right after the uh, advertisement, and we'll continue with this conversation. Great. Back in a little bit. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Do you feel that you aren't at your best when it comes to your personal health? Even if your doctor gives you a clean bill of health and says everything is in working order, perhaps you aren't feeling at the top of your game. Dr. Rebecca Risk overcame pain and fatigue despite all tests to the contrary. Learn how she put her health back on track and how you can too on Falling Through the Cracks. Live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. If you're busy, stressed, and can't ever seem to find the time to add in those new healthy habits, you need to check out Lisa Lutan's busy, stressed, and food-obsessed show. 
This program will help you discover easy ways to improve your health and happiness. Plus, you will pick up all sorts of tips on better eating, fitness, relationships, how to manage stress, and a lot more. You'll feel yourself becoming healthier just by tuning in. Listen live every Thursday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to drsusan at occupyhealth.com. That's drsusan at occupyhealth.com. Now, back to this week's program. Hi, folks. Welcome back to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan, and I'm with Dr. Len Saputo, who is an alternative integrative physician using many modalities that are quite interesting. He's using light. He's using pulse electromagnetic frequencies. So let's get back. And what other integrative tools are you using to help your patients get well? Well, actually, the, the bulk of the way I think is spiritual. I think that the, the role of spirit and healing is immense. And depending on how you look at that, it's it's. Uh, I think what you think and what you believe has a profound effect on your biochemistry and physiology. So when you start talking about the role of spirit and healing, it can be profound. If you've got a negative attitude about things, uh, chances are there's going to be a negative expression to that. Uh, but if you've got a positive attitude and you have faith and trust that you're being taken care of, and you and you have a practice, a spiritual practice of some kind, you're going to do better. I think that that everything that we have, uh, every illness that we have, is a reflection of our psycho-spiritual disease. So I would I would word it this way: that physical disease is the body's way of expressing psycho-spiritual disease. Now we got all these technologies we're talking about, and then we have this other side in addition, and they're really a partnership because it's good to have an open mind and do what you can to try and help people to feel better. I mean, there's a, a compassionate side of, of being a healer. It's really important. And if you pay attention to that and you allow people to participate fully in the psycho-spiritual side of it, uh, you, you're really doing a good thing. The technologies are important to get rid of symptoms, but they almost never get to the reason why we're sick in the first place. So I, I do a lot that way. I do orthomolecular medicine, which is a way of doing cell biochemistry, uh, and uh, I, I look at nutrition and pollution and stress, and I'm open to other kinds of disciplines like Chinese medicine and Ayurveda. In fact, I spent three weeks in Kerala, uh, in India, about a year and a half ago, uh, doing Pachakarma. So I, I've learned a lot about some of the things that you can do uh, that are integrative that really help people. And, I think you have to look at each person and find out who they are, what they need, and be with them rather than just pouring out a bunch of technologies to stop their symptoms. Interesting. So, in the spiritual, I mean, you go into your doctor's office, he gives you a really whammy of a diagnosis. Yeah. I mean, isn't, isn't it, I mean, I mean, aren't you going to have a negative attitude, yeah, uh, which kind of interferes with the spiritual concept you're talking about? I think so. Yeah. As soon as you know, you are told you have six months to live, you're probably going to live six months. That, that suggestion is powerful stuff. And in medicine, we're not taught to look at what causes all this. And we certainly don't look at the spiritual side of medicine. I mean, we give it lip service and we say, oh yeah, that's important. 
But what do you? What kind of training do you get during you know, your medical training? You, you don't get almost anything. It's all about technology, and most of it's drugs these days. Not so much light, or PMF. Or it's 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 a it's an economic uh, system more than it is a service. So the bottom line becomes: Does this make money? And if it makes money, we're going to push. We're going to write it all the way. If it doesn't make money. We're probably not going to want to get into it. And that's why light therapies have not been something that have become popular. I mean, who wants to, I mean, what organization is going to want to use light in their clinic or their university if you can't get paid for it? And you're treating a lot of people who can't afford to pay for it. You're just not going to do it. And that's what's happened uh, in my experience with local universities here that uh, I don't want to get specific about. Um, why aren't they paying for it? Why isn't insurance not reimbursing it? I should think they'd be all over this to have their patients get well. You would think that the HMOs would, you know, uh, an organization like Kaiser. The only thing I can think of is that, you know, we did our study about 10 years ago on diabetics with neuropathy that I mentioned at the VA in Martinez, California. And we went to the FDA first and said, help us organize this study so if it comes out, you'll give us the, the right approval so that we can bill for it. And they said, no problem. They wrote the study with us. We went out, we did the study. It came out just fine. And then they said, no, we changed our mind. So we went back to Washington, D.C., met with them for an afternoon. And the bottom line was, and this was off the record, but I don't care. Uh, <laughs> basically, I mean, what they said is, as long as Big Pharma is in bed with us, which they are, there's no way that this is ever going to get approved. Because this would really bite into their profits from a lot of drugs that are used for pain management. So I know there's a collusion that's going on between the FDA and the pharmaceutical industry, just like there is with the CDC. And a great example of that is Julie Gerberding, who was the yeah. director okay, yes. of the CDC under Clinton, who now has a nice job with Merck and vaccines, making about seven figures a year. And it, I mean, it's it's, it's about money. The whole culture is about money. And if you don't make a profit on something, very few people are interested. It's why we don't get to do the research that we'd like to do on things like this and, and do it in the major universities and, and have it get, get approval. You would think that the people at Harvard and Boston University would be able to get this forward, but they haven't been able to either, even though there are thousands of papers out there that support this. You know, that's not only in health. I've noticed it with the FCC and sure. cell phone regulation. They passed a law in 1996, said it's illegal to stop the construction of a cell tower for health reasons. You yeah. think they knew something? And the FD, you know, and the people in farming, I mean, the fact that they can allow glyphosate, they yeah. just double the amount of glyphosate, which is okay for us to ingest. So, right. I mean, it just seems to be across all the government agencies. Well, it's in every segment of our culture. It's in business, it's in law, it's in medicine, it's in science, uh, it's in uh, religion. I mean, it's all about, it's not about service is the first thing. It's about return on investment first. And if that works and you can provide service, then it's wonderful, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it, that's what we've degenerated into. So what we need is a cultural evolution, some kind of change where our values are different. And it's not just about revolution. You can't just take the person that's in power and get rid of that person and bring somebody in because there'll be just another pretty face doing the same thing. Exactly. It takes, it takes evolution. 
So you exactly. Have to your values. So it's not about revolving through revolution. It's about evolving through evolution. And that hasn't happened at the pace I'd like to see. And how would that happen? Well, we have to understand what life is about. I mean, it's about, is it all about me? It's all narcissistic and what I can get about money and power. I mean, look at the rich people in the world. What are they doing? They're trying to get more money and more power because the amount they have hasn't done the trick. But like Gates and Zuckerberg, they're giving away like 95%. So, I mean, I'm a believer in capitalism, but I want compassionate capitalism. Well, sensible capitalism. Yeah. It shouldn't be narcissistic. It's more yeah, about exactly. sharing and giving and loving. And when you change your values from narcissism, that's all about you and what you can get to a community effort. Now you've made a transition that would be huge. And in the thousands of years we've been on the planet, we haven't worked that out. It's like stupid. We're more interested in wars to make money. And we're in seven wars right now. Last mm. time I checked. And what's the point of that? It's return on investment. It's certainly not about people. What do you think would have happened in the Middle East instead of spending six trillion dollars on that stupid on those stupid wars? We had spent six or six trillion dollars on trying to help the people. You think they might have liked us rather than trying to kill us? I mean, who's doing yeah. what and for what reason? Yeah. But even if there were a leader that came in and did all the right lip service and say, I'm all about compassion, I still wouldn't trust them because, uh, you know, I mean, I, you know, they'll, you know, whatever the people want, they'll be, uh, the leader could say that. It doesn't mean we can trust them. Well, that's what they do. You know, the change we need. Go back to Obama. The change we need. Well, the change we need wasn't the change we got. Particularly when you look at health care, the Affordable Care Act was a total disaster. It's not like they didn't know that. I wrote a paper on that uh, that, I, that I really gets to the nitty-gritty of what happened there. I mean, they could have passed that whole universal health care thing in the first few months of Congress had they wanted to, but they didn't. They, and they had the majority in the House and in the Senate to get it passed. But what happened was something totally different. Ted Kennedy, they knew had a brain tumor, and he was one of the Democrats that they absolutely needed in the Senate because that, they had 60 votes, which is what they needed, is exactly what they needed. When he died, which was predictable, now we had 59. And then all of a sudden, there's been no Democrat elected in Massachusetts for 75 years, and a guy comes out and wins it as a Republican. What do you think that's all about? It's unbelievable that things like that can happen. And then you've got the whole system falling apart. I think that was all done by design myself. Nobody could be stupid enough, I think, to believe that that just happened. It was bad luck and gee, the Republicans just won. What they did is they didn't give us the change we need. And they certainly weren't going to give the change of need, uh, a change we need to the people who are trying to control health care, which would be big farm and the insurance industry for the most part. So it all fell apart. And then we wound up with Affordable Care Act, which is what, 2,600 pages of bullshit. And you yeah, can't... we couldn't even read it until they passed it. Well, yeah. What did Nancy Pelosi say? Let's get this sucker passed and then we'll figure out what it means. Are you kidding me? Uh, it's hard to comprehend. Well, it really it, isn't. It really is. It should isn't. be one law, one concept, and not adding all this pork. And well, if they right. get rid of the lobbyist that's buying our Congress, things might get a lot better right there. I'll say. I'll say. But, but what we've got is a corrupt Congress. We have a corporate America today. And that's what's making decisions because that's where the money is. And the people that are supposed to be representing us, representing us 
they're not representing us. They're representing themselves. And what concerns me is we're so divided and everybody's so angry at each other because they can't figure because everybody because they hate anybody that doesn't agree with whatever candidate they agree they want. We're so busy being divided that that's when something really horrible can happen. When we're too busy fighting each other, we need to look at what we've got in common. That's right. Well, nobody much wants to do what's right necessarily. What they want is to make sure that they're 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 going to be reelected, and they're looking for funds to do that. And so the insurance industry. This is a ridiculous story. Back in two thousand nine and two thousand ten, when Obama was running and was elected, uh, they they spent about five hundred million dollars lobbying to Congress. Okay, to buy basically a three trillion dollar industry because that's what. Uh, medicine costs every year, $3 trillion. And the reason that that comes to about a million dollars per congressperson, and I know it's not evenly distributed, but that's what, that's what the average is. And so once that happens, who do you think the Congress people are going to be loyal to? The people that feed them with what they want, which is the money. And that's what happened. And so we wound up with the Affordable Care Act, which is nowhere near universal health care. And mind you, I don't think universal health care is the answer. Certainly isn't, because yeah. what we don't need is more of what we got and give it to everybody. Exactly. That's just crazy. But we do need to give health care to everybody, and having Western medicine as part of that is very important, because there are some wonderful things we do in Western medicine. It just needs to be broadened, and we need to be more thoughtful about what are we trying to do. Well, thank God there are people like you that are uh, working on getting these technologies perfected so they can help us. And it would be really great if more physicians are using it. Why aren't they using it? That's a good story. I mean, first of all, it's the equipment can be a little expensive. You can easily spend about $20,000 to set it up, and that's not much for a hospital. But if you're not going to get paid for what you do, why do you want to do it? Because it doesn't add to your bottom line. Doctors don't know how to use uh, the equipment that we have. It takes a training course to do it. It's not offered in medical school. And we aren't taught to think in terms of biophysics. We're back with the primitive biochemistry, you know, that's regulated by biophysics, but we haven't really taken a step forward to look at that. So we're a little slow to make the change. You can't really blame doctors. You know, go to school for medical school for four years, another four years or five years of residency, and then you do a, a postdoc fellowship. You're looking sometimes at 15 or more years. And then you're ready to go practice, and then somebody comes along and says, Oh, all that stuff you're doing, it's not so right. Why don't you try this? And it's like, give me a break. Yeah, and many of my colleagues owe like $300,000 for their education. And yeah, uh, right. I only owed over 100 but these folks owe over 300 And that sounds like a big albatross on their neck. Well, it is. Plus, the training is, is not very ideal. I mean, it's so paternalistic. And it's, a, it's like a dictatorship. You either do what you're told or you don't pass. And then you're done. Yeah, they do that after you you're so tired you can't think straight because I know for me I was up for 36 hours and off for 12 for about a year me too every third day a 40 hour shift yeah so what's the point I mean that's stupid you kill a lot of people that way too and even though you never know it because you're not at your best you're not at your best and somebody comes in with a life threatening thing and and you're just training you don't even know what you're doing really it gets it's, it's it's a tough thing to accept we need to change our, our training. 
our medical students and residents are abused. Now, you talk about teaching spirituality. When I am sitting in a lecture and they're giving lip service to this, part of me just turns off because it just feels like mouth service. How do you teach spirituality? Isn't that some core value that's so intrinsic that listening to, hearing about it in a classroom is, you know, just not it? Well, I think most people, before they go to medical school, are either religious or spiritual. I think these are good people wanting to do the right thing. And then you go to medical school and it's, and it's different. It becomes science-based. You know, they're talking about the science approach that we have to medicine. And, and that's the furthest thing from the truth. Our research is horrible. When you look at, at people like Marcia Angel, who was a doctor from Harvard that was the editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, and Catherine DeAngelis of the Journal of American Medical Association, and Ushma Neal of the Journal of Clinical Investigation, and see what their attitude is about the material that's printed in their journals, you wouldn't believe it, because they think it's trash. And two of those people quit their job and start writing about it. Catherine DeAngelis is the only one that kept her job with JAMA. The other two quit and said, I can't take this anymore. So why? Because the, the, the material is mostly published by who? Big Pharma. So I said $92 billion a year spent on, on, uh, on, main, uh, on research that's funded by Big Pharma and $32 billion by the government through the National Institutes of Health. And they have ties with Big Pharma too. So do you think Big Pharma is going to come out and spend $500 million on a study, find out that it's no good and say, hey guys, don't buy our stuff because it's crap. When's the last time you saw that? Probably what? never. I also understand from Kelly Brogan that they've got as many shots as they want to have a study come out positive. So oh. they might have 10 negative studies. Oh, we got a positive one. Let's submit it. And oh, right. they accept right. it. Okay. So when the Office of Technology Assessment looked at this and two other organizations that published in, I think it was New England Journal and British Medical Journal, they, they asked the question, how much good science is there in the practice of medicine? They all three came up with the same number. It was 15%. Then they went back and they looked at research and said, how much of the research that we publish is good, solid science? This number, no one's going to believe. It was 1%. 1%, 99% crap, 1% cream. And how do you know which one to believe? Because what you're doing most of the time, if you're a physician in practice and in the ICU, maybe taking care of people that are sick, I mean, you're looking at, at uh reading the abstract and saying, oh, we got this new thing, we should try ex- this drug or that drug or that technology, and it's, it's not even right. It's like, wow. So how do you really get good information? If you want to read an article and really learn that article in the medical journals, it's going to take you a week. I'm sorry. It takes about a week. You're correct, yes. You got, and if you're coming out with thousands of articles every day, how could you possibly keep up with stuff that's good? You're getting crap and out comes crap. Yeah. Because you have to look at the, who did the study. What were their numbers? Please show me your raw data because I don't believe it. And you shouldn't because it gets changed around, even at the best institutions. It's, it's criminal. But then we're back at, at why do we publish things? We publish it because we have a new technology or a new antibiotic, some new drug that some entrepreneur wants to make a fortune from. So we'll publish what we can to try and convince you that this is what you should do. Give me a break. So what is a doctor or much less uh, one of our listeners supposed to do? Suffer. 
Oh, yeah. come on. There's got to be a more. Op- yeah, come on. You're talking about optimism. Let's be optimistic and not so negative. Well, I mean, look, we've got a history that goes back, what, 100 years in medicine? It ain't changed yet. And the system is deeply ingrained. I'd say, you know, doctors, there's this. Gary Null published a paper called Death by Medicine. And it was referenced with 250 different articles. Okay. It was really a good paper. And he showed that there are about a million people that die every year at the hands of doctors. A million people. We know that 100,000 people die at least every year from the expected side effects of medications in hospital patients. And how many outside of the hospital die every year? I mean, you're looking at things like Advil and Aleve and Motrin and Celebrex and Vioxx and drugs like that. And acids, statins, add them to the list. The list goes on. But just the NSAIDs, okay, just things like Advil will kill 30,000 people a year and put 300,000 in hospital. So you want me to be optimistic? How do they kill people? How does Advil and aspirin and ibuprofen and all that, how do they kill people? Well, heart attacks, strokes, kidney failure, GI bleeds are the main thing. I mean, it's these, these drugs cause the heart attacks? Absolutely. That, that, if that was all suppressed uh, back in about uh, the year 2000, because a company that made uh, Vioxx and Bextra, okay, they knew that it caused heart attacks and strokes five years before it was approved in 1999. Between 1999 and 2004, there were 50,000 people who died from that, okay? 50,000 that we know of. That's criminal to me because they knew what they were doing. They murdered these people because they knew they could get away with it. Now, they made billions of dollars on it and they're going to get sued and lose probably $5 billion, but you know what? They're still about $15 billion ahead. Now, you're asking me to be optimistic. Yes, I, you're talking about being optimistic and not negative. So I'm looking for the horse in the pile of all of this. And so what is something the doctor can do and the listener can do uh, to help themselves? I mean, obviously okay. exploring other alternatives, but given what can a doctor do to make it better? What can a patient do to make it better? What can, can they do ev- for themselves? They can evolve. We're talking about evolution here. We need to change so that we're not so much interested in just ourselves uh, from the point of view of money and power and be more interested in sharing and giving and loving and trying to build community. So I'll be very optimistic if we do that. We ought to act like we do in church or in, in our spiritual lives and try to be the best grain of sand on the beaches of the cosmos as we can. And that's all we can do. And it seems like it's impossible to make a change that way. And definitely it takes a lot of time, but it's about evolution. It's not about revolution. It's not about finding somebody new to, to scream to. It's, it's not about uh, what we do with our Congress. I mean, the whole system is polluted. I can't be positive about that. And what I hope to do uh, by this conversation we're having is to convince people that we need to start thinking about our neighbors and about, about other people that are in our lives and about our communities and trying to build community rather than drive two or three cars or have our boats and condos. I mean, what does that do for you? Those things own you. But there's so many people just on the brink of surviving and paying their bills. How sure. do we help people connect with this inner urge to be, think beyond themselves and think about something far greater? What can we do to help people connect with that? 
Well, it'd be the best grain of sand on the beaches of the cosmos. That's the bottom line. So be a good person. Just uh, walk your talk. Be the example and uh, help people. You know, in, in our practices, you and I don't make much money. And it's mainly because we're giving away a lot of stuff for people who can't afford it. Now, that's a good thing to do. That builds community. But not everybody can do that. And when you're talking about the poor people, you're talking about the homeless, you know, the vets and people in mental institutions that are now in the streets of, of San Francisco. I mean, we could do a lot about that. We could solve the whole homeless problem if we took care of America. But we're out spending $6 trillion because rich people like to have wars because they make money off the profits of selling arms. So what can you do? Stop it. How do you convince them? They're the ones in control because they've got all the money. And so we got the poor people that are on the streets and we say, oh, they, they don't even, they won't work. And nobody's looking at, at the story of their life, which is a terrible disaster. They may have PTSD from having been in one of the seven wars that we're in now. I mean, is, is that the way we want to live our life? I mean, I feel embarrassed when I see people on the streets in San Francisco. And I'll give them money, and I know they're going to go buy drugs. And I'll be working with them uh, today, right after this interview. Yeah. Well, I tried to do that. I was working with Angela Aliotto uh, in San Francisco with the city council there for about six months. And finally just gave up because nobody really cared. They were interested. Angela did. But the rest of the people on on the city council were laughing at me because they thought, you want to just give it away? And I said, yeah, I want to do something. And it's not like San Francisco is not doing something. They're doing something. But if at a national level, we could spend a trillion dollars maybe on the homeless people of America and solve the problem. Now, we're not going to solve all the psychiatric stuff, but we're going to make a big dent in what's happening. Hmm. But it sounds like uh, it's got to be an individual uh, transformation in each individual. Right. And then I think... You know, the theory, I think, in spirituality, you get like a 1% or a certain percentage that are on that page, then things might change for the better. That's right. That's why I say be the best grain of sand on the beaches of the cosmos as you can. And don't look back. And don't try to, to measure what you've done. Just be that good grain of sand. And go on and, and continue to set the example. And a few people are going to see it, and it does see it. And that does make change. It just doesn't happen fast. There's been a lot of change in the last 25 years in medicine in Northern California, in part because of what I've done in trying to promote this. Well, you are a pretty good grain of sand. So can you please help our listener, uh, let them know what a listener can do to help his own health? And, you know, I mean, focusing on his own health and the health of those around him. Sure. Lifestyle medicine's it. It's what you eat. It's exercising. It's getting enough sleep. It's stress reduction. Uh, it's not being exposed to environmental toxins. Weigh what you should. And above all, have a meaningful purpose in your life. Your know, lifestyle is the most powerful medicine in the universe. So if you want to be healthy, pay attention to the style in which you live your life. That's what I would say. Okay, and we've got a few minutes left. So any more advice and how to get a hold of you and your final parting inspiration so we can all go out and work on getting healthy? Sure. I mean, the the first thing is come to my website. The website cost me $25,000 a year, okay, to maintain. I don't make one cent. There are no ads. So this is a gift. And like we said earlier, there are 2,600 audio and video files that I've made myself with my wife, Vicki, who's an RN. 
and uh, we've had uh, we've made 33 health assessments on it that look at the different common illnesses we have, and then in these assessments. It takes two or three minutes to fill out yes, no, or multiple choice. And what will come back are the audios and videos that I think are appropriate for you to, to, to listen or watch so that you can learn the integrative strategies, strategies that are possible for treatment. So the website's a wonderful uh, way to get free advice uh, that's integrative, that really is looking at integrative, holistic, person-centered, and preventive health care. Uh, so that's a good thing to do. And then just, you know, give and share. Uh, be more willing to build community and try to support your neighbors and to, to listen to them and not judge people. Until you walk in their shoes, you can't judge. Or if you do judge, it sure as hell isn't going isn't gonna to do anybody any good because you're not, we're not qualified to judge anybody until we've walked in their shoes. So those are the kinds of things that I think are really important. And when it comes to light therapies, uh, I don't know what to say except that there are so many ways to manage very challenging diseases that uh, we didn't talk about all the different kinds, but there's so many that uh, if you can find a practitioner who who really knows what they're doing and they're, they're very not very many around, you should be imaging with an infrared scanner as you treat. Uh, and And if you can find a practitioner like that, I'd stay away from the drugs and surgeries and other technologies because they all have this thing called side effects. And like I was saying, Gary Null did this study uh, on uh, how many people died from, on the, from the hands of doctors. And it comes out to about a million every year. So some advice would be stay away from your doctor unless you really you know, need to do that because medicine in the hospital is dangerous stuff. Okay, I would like to interject at this point because we're coming to a close. I advise each person to consult with their doctor, uh, do their own research, uh, consult with different sources. You've got to work with your doctor. It's not a them versus us. We all have to work together. So work with your physician. Go learn about health. Do your research so you can help yourself and help others. So thank you, Lynn. And everybody, please be well. for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.